Have you ever felt like you care a little too much? For many of us, it's not an unfamiliar feeling. I know I can relate. Caring in today's world can feel really, really hard, and it's easy to understand why. There's so much to care about, and oftentimes it feels like there's very little to do with all that caring. From the last two years of pandemic life to staying constantly engaged as best we can with different social issues and political activism, to staying on top of rapidly changing and really dramatic news cycles, it can feel like there's just far too much to care about. You might feel tempted, as I sometimes do, to throw up your hands and say, forget it, I just can't care as much as I do any longer. And yet, our guest today says that caring is not something that we should give up on. In fact, she's calling all of us out to keep caring and to care even more. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. Our guest today is author Kat Velos. Kat, you might say, is a professional carer. That's because her work as a speaker, facilitator, researcher, and experienced designer all seem to revolve around one thing, caring. She's on a mission to help people experience greater authentic connection with each other and healthy friendships in their personal lives. Kat is the author of two books. One is We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships, and the other is called Connected from Afar, a guide for staying close when you're far away. We recorded our conversation in March 2022 and are replaying it for you today at the end of the year as it is the most listened to episode of the entire year. Thank you to you, dear listener, for being here. Kat, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. It's great to be here with you. You wrote recently, and I'll quote you here, you know what? Creating the lives, friendships, relationships, governments, companies, work environments, neighborhoods, societies, and planet that we want to see and experience all comes down to one thing, giving a fuck about the outcome. <laughs> and <laughs> you, you go on to explain that there's a, a saying that swirls around corners of the internet and in pop culture today. And that saying, there's some variations to it, but I'm sure our listeners uh, have heard it. Uh, that saying is, I have zero fucks to give, or I'm out of fucks to give. Now, why, why has that saying come to grade you so much these days? Yeah, so I will say, uh, I like you, I, I cherish a, a, well quali- a high quality uh, F-bomb, well-placed every <laughs> now and then too, but my newsletter usually isn't uh, that salty. But um, the saying, you know, it, it's been you know, going on years now that people are saying this more and more and more. And at first it was like really funny and really cute, but I'm really tired of it. And the reason that it's come to great on me these days is that it kind of glorifies being someone who doesn't care um, as if it's not admirable to care. And as someone who spends a lot of my time, as you mentioned, you know, in the work that I do, thinking about and caring about outcomes for human beings and caring about how they're connecting and caring about what the impact is on our society when people lack connection in their lives and meaningful friendships and meaningful community, you know, it's really like not caring is at 180 degrees opposite from the point of my work and the point of this thing that I value so highly. 
And it concerns me um, that, you know, it's one thing to just like be like, oh yeah, I don't care about that. And, you know, move on to the next topic. But what I see happening is almost this like glorification of not caring as if like people who like don't give a fuck are like badass and cool and like admirable in a way that is like this almost like toxic individualism. It's like, I'm only here for myself. I don't care about anybody else. I don't care about, you know, other uh, outcomes or other people or other situations. I give no fuck about anyone. I got to look out for myself. And this sort of dog eat dog, like I, I really think of it as like a toxic individualism that says like, I only care about myself. And what concerns me about that is like, what happens to society if everybody takes on that attitude? Yeah. I love how you phrase it as a toxic individualism because on the one hand, and I can relate to what you're saying. I remember when I first started to hear this phrase floating around like social media, probably like 10 years ago or so um, when, when social media still felt like a relatively positive (laughs) and connected place, we'll get around (laughs) to that. But I remember some friends and like bloggers that I was connected with being like, I'm out of fucks to give and thinking like, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard because like, what is a fuck to give anyway? But it just made sense. And over the years though, and and you note this in your newsletter, what you wrote saying that this has kind of become this, uh, like pseudo badge of honor. Like I'm too cool to give a fuck anymore. And you, and you paint this picture with words of like somebody walking away from like a burning building, like in slow motion, like it's an action movie. Like (laughs) they just, they, you know, they're just burning everything down and they don't give a shit. And Mm -hmm. I think we contrast that feeling of, uh, walking away from things that are falling down or are falling apart and feeling a sense of pride in it. I wonder what that story means. Like, what is the real story there? Do you think, I know you mentioned toxic individualism and I totally agree. I'd love to like parse that apart with you, but do you feel like there's like some other like sense of um, disassociation or like desperation that is kind of like the hidden story beneath this this proclamation of not caring? Like, what do you think about the origins or the roots of what somebody is saying when they kind of let it slip? Like, oh, I'm out of fucks to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a both and. So on on the one hand, you know, as you described, like the disassociation, there is a part, like there's been studies that show that over the last few decades, even empathy in American culture has been on the decline. And, and they study this with particularly young people, uh, like high school and college age students. Um, and over time, people are caring less. And one of the, you know, theorized causes for this is that social media culture, you know, online comment culture where people are really, really cruel to each other often um, ends up kind of infusing people's lives with like, oh, like it's okay to trash other people and there's really no consequence for that. It's it's okay to like not care if you hurt somebody, uh, you know, online because that's not quite a quote unquote real, even though it is very real. <laughs> um, and there's no consequence. And so that sort of feeds this idea that you can say and do whatever you want and you can just log off. You can shut your computer. You can walk away after that and like not actually have to experience the consequence of what happened to the person on the other side. And then there's also when I think of like, okay, if I put myself in the shoes of someone who's like, you know what? I don't give a fuck anymore. I just have no more fucks to give. I'm like, well, what gets someone to that place? Like what else could be 
at play here. And you mentioned the word desperation. And I think about that too, because we live in a world that is increasingly difficult. So from the rising cost of everything from healthcare to schooling, feeling politically disengaged or even you know, horrified at things that so-called political leaders are doing, um, burnout, you know, living through the pandemic, it is exhausting to also live right now. And I think, okay, well, if people are really, really tired, they're really burned out, then sure, they might feel like they don't have the energy to care. And that's completely understandable, right? It's like, they're just focused on trying to stay alive. And when we have a, a society that lives too long in survival mode rather than like say thriving mode, yeah, that might happen. People might be feeling so worn down and burnout that they're like, I'm too exhausted to actually uh, get more involved to change the outcomes of, of the world around me that I see happening. But we have to find a balance with completely checking out and not caring and just like shutting our eyes and turning our back on all of that because it does affect us even if we try to ignore it um, and like overdoing it with being like, now everybody has to care like 110% every day. Like that's also not the answer because that's a different path to burnout. And so I really think it takes some intention. It takes some uh, kind of finding that middle path, but also acknowledging that it's not cool to not care. When I was thinking about this coming up to our conversation today, I was thinking about, you know, who are the people who care? Who are the people who get things done? And either positive or negative, for good or evil, the people who care about the outcome are the ones who take action and get shit done, whether their actions are beautiful or horrifying. You can think about, like, you can have a goal and it can be to heal society or to start a war. But if you care about that goal and you want to make it happen, you're going to do it. And we're seeing that right now, unfortunately, with like the dreadful invasion of the Ukraine from Russia. And it's like, he cares about the outcome <laughs> in yeah. a way that many of us are now being called to care about the outcome. Right. You know? But if we just say, I don't give a fuck, what does that mean for the entire world? What does that mean for all of us? If we just be like, I don't give a fuck about that. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds, Kat, to, to summarize a bit of, of your point of view here, it sounds like on the one hand, there are like there are a lot of environmental conditions, such as the nature of the internet and social media and how that's so entwined with culture, more or less the world over, at least in you know, like industrialized nations, um, kind of like warping how we all relate to self-expression and um and caring and, and and that's kind of having an effect it seems like the research shows on empathy especially in young people which i find really alarming because i feel like maybe like a, a overgeneralization but i feel like young people and young adults are historically the ones who we think care the most and have mm -hmm. the most caring and advocacy and they're willing to risk the most and you know when they're when they're uh, either being um I know historically young people aren't the most active voters, but being politically engaged and, and being the boots on the ground in terms of advocacy and things. So that's kind of a scary thought. But it also sounds like um, so in, there's the environmental side of things, so to speak, but also the nature of what's been going on in the world, causing so much like burnout and exhaustion and emotional fatigue, as mm -hmm. well as like, let's say like, you know, manipulation and gaslighting on certain levels of, um, you know, the whole 
post-truth era in which we're living and like mm. what is real, what isn't. Like that's exhausting too. Um, but what I'm hearing you say is that caring is not all necessarily good, but not having it has consequences. And it sounds like for you um, and, and as a as a UX designer, especially where like everything you do is really about trying to understand outcomes and also trying to encourage the right outcomes for people, for users of different programs and services, that caring is absolutely essential if you want anything to happen or want anything to change. And you started to mention about why caring matters. Um, why to you is is caring so important? Have, has, has caring always felt like a part of you on a personal level or soul level or gut level? Um, or is it something that you came to maybe learn the importance of over time based on like your life and, and your experiences? Hmm. When I think about, I, I've always been a sensitive person. Like even when I was a kid, like adults around me would be like, you're too sensitive. Like, why are you crying? <laughs> and I'm like, because I have feelings and emotions. Right. Um, so I would, I, I think ever since, my entire life, uh, early childhood, I've been a really sensitive person and who feels things really deeply. Um, and I don't know if that means I can walk around being like, I'm a caring person. I think I'm a caring person. I try to be a caring person. But I think that being someone who feels things very sensitively overlaps with the amount that I care when I see pain, when I see beauty when I see, you know, all of these things happening in the world around us. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's something that's always been a part of who I am and, and likely plays into why I chose to do the work that I'm doing right now. You know, since writing, we should get together and really taking the full focus of my work attention in the world into how can we help people live more healthy, connected lives with healthy friendship and community, which is one of the greatest sources of physical health, emotional health, and mental health. And think about how much that means to me. You know, I, I loved the work that I did as a UX designer as well, but this is like a hundred X more <laughs> meaningful to me in terms mm -hmm. of like what it means if we are successful at this goal, like what it means for society, what it means for humanity. You know, I, I love the work I did before. And, and you mentioned, you know, that when you're a UX designer, you have to care about the outcome. And I can share more about that um, if you want, but I, I think I'm kind of rambling right now. Um, <laughs> if you want to like reel it yeah, into, yeah, I'll, I'll pull you question. back because there's we're, there's two <laughs> tracks that I'm so interested in going down. One is about like your book, we should get together, and like everything around that. There's also this question and a curiosity that I have about UX design and how that um, reinforced this caring side of you and the sensitive side of you that cared about outcomes, whether it's people or the results of things. So maybe we can table the book chat sure. for a moment because yeah, yeah. for our listeners who don't know what UX design is, could you, and like, I think I know what it is because <laughs> I've been on the internet for, for my whole life, but can you give us a really simplified understanding of what user experience or UX design is and what a UX designer does? Yeah. So the shortest, simplest answer I usually give to this question is a person who is a UX designer, user experience designer, their ultimate goal is to ensure that 
the experience is user-friendly. Most people understand what it's like to use an app or a website that's user-friendly. And we definitely know what it's like when it's not user-friendly. It can, It's confusing. It makes you angry. You want to throw your phone across the room because you're like, I don't understand what's happening. Like, why isn't the button working? Like, you know, things like that. We know what it's like when the web works uh, badly <laughs> or an app works, you know, in a confusing way. And so a user experience designer is to ensure that it works well and that it is easy to understand and that you can accomplish the task you came to do without any frustration. Mm -hmm. And so how is UX design different than, say, like visual design? I I believe that there are obviously visual elements in UX design, but really Mm -hmm. I feel like it's like it's uh, the design aspect is almost scientific, like you're trying to create an experience that's efficient and um, I think also probably plays into like psychology and how yes. people can relate to like an interface, like on a screen. Could you tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Yeah. User experience design and user experience research have much more involvement in the questions of, you mentioned like psychology, also behavioral economics, like understanding what are the non um visual design elements that are at play when someone is trying to accomplish this task. You know, what is the mindset that they're in? What is the urgency of the situation? How do our brains process information in what kinds of order for something to be simple, easy to understand, and efficient? And what is the uh, simplest path towards getting them to their goal? as as positively and successfully as possible. And so, yeah, a lot of that comes down to like when I was doing a lot of user research interviews, it's really trying to understand like what is the context that this person is in? What are all the factors at play? And taking all of that into consideration, what would be an ideal set of recommendations for how a thing should be designed? Sometimes that has to do with what it looks like, but more likely it has to do with what it works like. Because a lot of things look beautiful and are very confusing to use and you can't understand them. Um, and some things are not that visually beautiful, but they are highly functional. You know, like Craigslist, for example. I wouldn't think anyone would call that a beautiful website, but it is so functional that they haven't changed the design for like over a decade, you know, or right. ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah. It, so it sounds it, like you you can't really be a UX designer and not care about outcomes. Like the work is caring, but it's not, it, and it's like a deeper level of um, understanding and awareness that seems required because like you said, there's so many different subtle forces, factors, influences in play. It's not just like having somebody click the button. Um, yeah. It also plays into what their expectations are. So it sounds like you really have to really care about outcomes yes. to be a successful UX designer. I guess you yeah, can it would be not impossible not to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I was going to say it's impossible not to, but I guess it's possible to do it that way and not care, but you would be terrible at it. And to have a very, very short very. career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, it's, it's so fascinating because it, these are things that, you know, when we're on the user side, speaking, you know, on behalf of our, our listeners, something we can really take for granted, like you said, Kat, except when things don't work. Yes. Um, I can think to recently my partner spending like 30 minutes, almost literally banging her head against the wall, trying to get um, like uh, her like COVID passport up in preparation for travels. And I was mm-hmm. trying to coach her through my understanding of how the website wasn't working. You know, it was like, you know, it's a Caribbean Island tourism board's website. And I was like, I don't think this is going to work as well as, as you hope it would. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really strikes me that uh, 
you, you seem to have found this, this first career path in UX design that really highlighted a lot of these core attributes and personality traits. And, you know, you mentioned always being a sensitive kid. Um, what did UX design teach you about caring about outcomes, but not just in the sense of UX design in mm. the world around you? Yeah. I mean, one thing is that, you know, very often for a lot of the startups and apps and platforms from small ones to the biggest ones that everybody knows the names of, um, the, the experience of a designer or user experience designer who may be trying to create certain outcomes for users, uh, perhaps the best possible outcome for users, sometimes this is at odds with what the business owners want, right? And Unfortunately, what that has led to is a rather disappointing experience where the outcomes that are being created are the ones that would please the company's shareholders at the expense of what is the best outcome for human beings. And I will say, I did not work on social networking apps, but we see this a lot in the way that social networking apps function in, in people's lives. And one of the ways that this came up when I was doing my research around friendship is it was not uncommon for someone, you know, to say that they have, you know, hundreds of friends, quote unquote, friends on social media, uh, you know, adding up together, you know, how all the different social media apps somebody might be on. And they're like, yeah, I have hundreds of friends, you know, uh, on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever. But when I want someone to hang out with, I'm, I'm lonely. I don't have anyone to call. I don't have anyone to hang out with. And so there's a disconnect between what it means to be connected digitally or virtually, and what it means to be connected emotionally, psychologically, uh, tangibly in our lives. And so that question uh, was one that intrigued me and certainly fed into why I decided to write We Should Get Together and what led this curiosity that's now years long around how do adults who have very busy, very complicated lives form and maintain healthy friendships in a world with so many competing demands and distractions. I love that subject. I love that question. So I think we should definitely follow that into discussing We Should Get Together, um, which is a book, as you mentioned, Kat, about connection and bringing people together and cultivating platonic friendships as adults, but meaningful um, lasting friendships. Uh, why is it so tough for us as adults to make friends? Well, that's kind of, uh, that's one half of the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's that there's many, many reasons why it's so tough to make friends. You know, we have, uh, there's, and I delve into all of these in different sections, you know, so one of the big factors uh, is what I call our hypermobile culture. Um, and this was definitely, I think, more true before the pandemic. And I wonder what it will look like in the years as the pandemic kind of hopefully comes to a decrescendo. Um, but we live in a world where people move their physical presence uh, at a much faster rate than has ever happened before. So moving in and out of cities and states and countries and changing jobs and moving is one of the number one factors that adults name is the reason why their friendships falter or wither over time is that they or their friends have moved. And it's harder to maintain those friendships from a distance. Another cause is busyness, people feeling like they're too busy to have friends or they want to see their friends, but they're like, oh my gosh, I don't have any time. Uh, another factor has to do with 
the changes that occur to uh, responsibilities in adulthood, particularly around the development of a primary relationship, a romantic relationship, or becoming a parent. And so it doesn't mean that those things are bad. It just means that the amount of time that it takes to invest in a uh, really like big time adult relationship uh, takes a lot of time and having a newborn or raising kids takes a lot of time. And so the attention you might've had for like going drinking at the bar with your friends and playing pool every Friday night or whatever, it kind of evaporates when you have these other competing demands. And then the last uh, big cause that I write about in the book has to do with uh, kind of our declining capacity to develop intimacy. So many people spoke to me about the fact that they, you know, have all these quote unquote friends, but if they were in a time of need, they would not really know who to call. And they felt uncomfortable even expressing needing help, which is one of the markers of what we do when we have an intimate trusting relationship, Um, as well as like people saying they kind of don't know how to get beyond the surface. So maybe they hang out with their friends, but they, um, they just chit chat, they make small talk, but they don't actually get to the deeper like heart-based conversations and they, and they don't really know how to make that happen. Yeah. Wow. That, that's pretty heartbreaking to, to hear that, um, as you mentioned, Kat, that uh, people report a declining capacity mm-hmm. uh, to develop intimacy despite these like panging, pangs and longings that are not only so fundamentally human, Mm-hmm. But also as loneliness, this, you know, uh, pandemic of loneliness kind of wraps the world over mm-hmm. uh, and gets worse and worse, especially like, you know, in the United States, where I know you've, you've centered a lot of your research, but also in other other countries and yes. societies that loneliness is a, is a real big problem. We understand more and more that there are tremendous health implications for loneliness, feeling lonely. Uh, in your book, you write that the former Surgeon General uh, equated feeling lonely to having the stress impact as equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes, uh, mm-hmm. which I found um, startling, to, to say the least. Yeah. I, and it's really, it, it can have such a like physical effect when we lack these emotional connections. Um, there's a, just a whole host of them. And it's really a, a public health issue when there is a the epidemic of loneliness that's pervasive in this in the society. And I want to just say for any listeners who are like, oh my God, I would never read this book. It sounds really sad. Um, I also talk about solutions to each of these things and research-backed solutions and things that you can try that are small and medium and large for things that you can do. If you're like, oh, I have that issue. Like, what should I do about it? Like, there's many, many things to do. Many of them are quite fun um, that you can do to help turn that around. It's not just talking about the problems. I'm also like extremely solution-focused because I care about the outcome. Absolutely. And that, that's a great transition <laughs> there because I, I know one of the things that you recommend, Kat, which which speaks to my heart as a writer, is the art of letter writing um, and, and advising people um, who are either cultivating friendships or maintaining friendships to sit down and write a letter which feels on some levels very antiquated or old fashioned, but uh, is is on the one hand a really pretty special like emotional process for an individual writing a letter, meaning it can really connect you to yourself. And on the other hand, like what a great gesture and symbol of caring um, to to write and send a letter to someone that we uh, care about or consider a friend. What other um, 
tools and tactics do you like with, you know, maybe just mentioning one more because, because obviously our listeners will have to get your book and, and indulge in, in all of the ones that you write about, but what's one more uh, tactic or, or tool that you've really come to enjoy about turning caring into like outreach or an expression of caring to somebody uh, close to us? Mm. Yeah. As a writer, obviously I love writing. So uh, the, the letters and cards I think are just delightful. Uh, and the other thing that, uh, another aspect of this that some, someone can try that I've certainly pushed myself to try more of, um, is one of the, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the five love languages, Dave. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So one of, so one of them is words of affirmation that goes really good with writing. And one of them that was never really high on my list was gifts. And during the pandemic, I in, did much more intentionally explored the question of like, what would it look like to show my caring through gifting? And one of the reasons I don't really love, like why gifts probably isn't really high on my list of love languages is because I don't like a lot of materialism and consumerism and waste. And I, and I worry about like adding more um, garbage to the world. Because <laughs> a lot of things just get thrown away, like from even like a plastic bow that you have to then throw in the trash, right? So I, I've never really liked gifts, but I kind of explored like, what would it look like to uh, create gifts that are uh, maybe more handmade, possibly biodegradable, you know, like, but still are a, a demonstration of the care, a demonstration of the love. Um, and one of the ways I've explored this is through food. Um, so for example, now we're um, talking. Oh yeah. A gift <laughs> of food is like actually the most perfect gift that could be given in my book. Um, I love it. Yeah. And so you know, one of the ways I've, I've done this a little bit with neighbors during the pandemic is like trading little small gifts over the fence. So like they grow, they grow a lot of food in their garden. So sometimes they'll throw over like tomatoes or lemons and like, I would like bake some bread or something and like give them some bread or like give them some cookies. And so it's like this really sweet gift exchange of uh, really small tokens of, of food, but it's an expression of saying like, I care about you. I have something good here and I want to share it with you. Um, and so that's one, one very small example, but I think it's meaningful to think about like, what is it that you have to share? What might, uh, please or delight the other person. And that is uh, easy to do. Like, don't, don't spend too much time or money or stressing yourself out. Like, oh, I need to do a perfect gift. It's like a small gesture actually can carry a lot of meaning and just lets you know, like somebody was thinking about you. I love that coming from, uh, a predominantly, Italian family, like food is <laughs> food is its own love language. I think it yes. like transcends gifts. It's like it's everything uh, in my family, and I'd, I'd love the you know cooking for someone, baking for someone, offering something that is like nourishing and, and delicious. Like how how lovely to extend caring through something that I mean historically, culturally has always brought people together and been an expression of caring and community. Um, it, there's something that uh, comes to mind, Cat, which I was. Referencing, you're, you're no stranger to the TEDx stage. You've done a lot of speaking. And in your, your TEDx speech, um, you're speaking about your book and you're speaking about connection and platonic friendships. And you said this, this line that really caught my attention. And that line was, most people are waiting to be invited. Yeah. So thinking about our isolation, our loneliness, uh, how we struggle to and have this declining capacity to... Um, create intimacy or develop intimacy with others, and this notion that most people are waiting to be invited. I wonder if 
what you mean by that is that most people are passive about connecting and like waiting for someone else to do it for them. Or is it that people are actually more open to our invitations and our gestures than we think? What has your experience been like? I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. Especially when we look at the research around loneliness and find that close to half of the population says that they feel regularly on a somewhat to regular basis, like somewhat frequently to regular frequency basis. And what that tells me is that you could walk down the street and like 50% of the people that you pass are feeling some degree of loneliness and wishing for greater connection, wishing for more of the type of connection that they crave. Uh, in the book, I, I coined a term called platonic longing, which is, you know, we know about unrequited love, right? When people want a relationship. But we also have this pervasive sense of longing for platonic connection. And so when I say like most people are waiting to be invited, that means that like if you are holding yourself back from extending an invitation because you're worried about rejection, which is a real fear. Many people have talked to me about they're afraid somebody will say no, they're afraid they'll be rejected. I encourage you to realize like, you have better than 50-50 coin toss odds that people are going to want to hear what you are inviting them to or wanting to connect with them about and really going to be so happy that you wanted to include them, that you wanted to connect with them. And so that like waiting to be invited is like, it's like this wishful, hoping, like wanting to feel um desired, like wanting to feel included, wanting to feel a sense of belonging. And that comes when we say like, Hey, do you want to eat lunch with me? You know, or Hey, like, do you want to go for a walk and get a coffee one day? Or Hey, like, do you want to, um, I'm going to start doing Sunday dinners. Do you want to come over? You don't have to even cook, just come eat with us. You know, uh, that's what I mean. It's like to hear a sentence like that, to hear an invitation, a question like that would light up like literally half the population who like want to feel more connected. And so uh, I share that again as, as just a piece of motivation to know, like, even if somebody says no, there's a good chance the next person you ask is going to say yes. That's so interesting. So it's, it's like when you say that most people are waiting to be invited, Kat, it sounds like whether it's conscious or not, that m many people, uh, and we like you said, about half of people on average are reporting feeling lonely very often, that these people who are waiting to be invited are almost like holding their own openness to be seen, witnessed, held, and asked. And, and that's got to be pretty vulnerable. I know you mentioned that rejection is one of the reasons why um, people hesitate to make invitations uh, to, and to make plans or to reach out to, to a friend or to make a friend. I wonder about the the level of um, vulnerability to holding that openness, but feeling like no one's there to reciprocate it. That's got to be pretty hurtful too. It's got to. I imagine that's what propels this feeling of loneliness. Like, oh, I like I wish that someone would invite me to lunch or to go out, and I feel like I'm I feel like I'm open internally, but no one seems to be there. That has to be pretty painful as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. But like you say, that this act of of reaching out and there being pretty good odds that someone wants to be invited, it, it turns it turns the invitation into a, potentially like an act of service, and I think that's really beautiful. 
Yeah. And I think that one of the things that can happen, I, I'm very, very uh, in the book and in the workshops and events they do, I'm very encouraging of people to like, just try something, like have a, have an attitude of experimentation, know that it doesn't have to be perfect. You're just trying something, you're just doing an experiment. And if you say like, okay, I'm going to ask like five people if they want to have like a monthly dinner or something. Um, being an event planner, I can tell you, you're never going to get a hundred percent turnout. It is unrealistic to think you're ever going to get a hundred percent turnout. And so adjust your expectations. Like say like, okay, if I want five people to come, I'll probably have to ask 10 people and five of them will pass and five of them might say yes. And so when you get, you start getting somebody who has to decline, it's not going to ruin your day because they said no, because you understand like some people are going to say no, that's natural. That's completely normal. And some people are going to say yes. And you know what? Whoever comes is who's supposed to be there. So if only one person comes, great. You have a good conversation with them. And if nobody comes, you get to have a night by yourself. You get to relax. You don't have to do as much. It's okay. You can still try again, you know, but if you come with an attitude of experimentation, be like, well, this was experiment A. This was the first time I tried it. And then I tried it again B and I changed one thing about it. And then I tried C and I changed one thing about it and see what happens. Like go into it with an attitude of like learning and play and creativity. And then it doesn't have so much pressure on it anymore. Right. It becomes less performative or about having yeah. the right answers. And there's that UX designer in you, right? I can hear it mm -hmm. again. The, the attitude of experimentation, creativity, play. What I love about this whole conversation that we're having, Kat, is that when we talk about what to do or what to try to connect with other people, to make uh, new friendships or ma maintain our friendships or reignite old friendships, uh, you mentioned this attitude of experimentation, creativity, and play, like thinking about the other, uh, knowing that many people are open to being invited is pretty unironically, this all sounds like a, a really nice solution to what we started talking about at the top of the call, mm. which is that toxic individualism and the, you know, we called it when we were emailing about it, this like pseudo badge of honor, this like false pat on the back of I don't care. And I want everyone to know how much I don't care. Um, <laughs> um, maybe, and I, I just happen to have a feeling that those expressions are sometimes like preempting the pain or revealing yes. an amount of pain and loneliness that we yes. have. Like, I feel so alone. So I'm going to say, I don't give a fuck mm -hmm. to affirm that my aloneness is actually something that I want, even though <laughs> when you're asked in intimate moments by a researcher like you, <laughs> the truth is <laughs> no one wants to be alone. And um, so, so I think it's a really, for those listeners who want to tell a new story, who want to live a new story that isn't one of loneliness uh, and isolation or toxic individualism, that maybe the first and simplest thing you can do is just perform a little experiment, reach out, try to make a plan, especially if you know, as we said, the this the the many crescendos. I don't know if there's if that's an oxymoron uh, of this pandemic um, are hopefully subsiding. Uh, what a great opportunity to reach out and to reconnect and to use your books to uh, to do exactly that to be guidebooks. So you should uh, absolutely check out both of Cat's books. We should get together, and as well as 
um, connected from afar, a guide to staying close when you're far away. Before we wrap up, Kat, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I, I want to ask you a question. It's kind of like a fill in the blank with whatever comes to mind, if you'll entertain me, because this podcast sure. is called The New Story Is, and I'm curious how you would finish that blank. So if based on our conversation or otherwise what you're exploring in your work, how might you finish the following line? The new story is... I guess I would say... Um... The new story is about how we create the world we want to live in by taking action to show what we care about. Kat Velos, thank you so much for joining us on The New Story Is, and it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your work. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. This was really delightful. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. If you're new to the podcast, please subscribe, and follow, leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. If you've been here for a little bit longer, uh, maybe throughout the duration of 2022, thank you so much. You made this episode, this replay with author Kat Velos, the most listened to episode all year long. We hope you enjoyed listening back to it as you take your caring into the new year. We'll be back soon with another episode in your feed. Until then, take care, be well, and story on.